I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 13 this morning. <clears throat> I hope you've been getting something out of this series that we've been doing on the spiritual inside of the life of Moses. We've been it for a while, and it seems like the more I dig around in this, the deeper it gets, the more I find, the more it's blessing me as I study. Uh, the Bible talks about, oh, the depths of both the wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable and uh, his judgments and his ways past finding out. And I find that true. The more you study the scripture, it just seems like the more you, you find, you know, you read a passage of scripture, you read it over and over. And next thing you know, you read it and you see something that you never saw before. And, uh, the word of God is just like that. Exodus chapter 13. If you found your place there, uh, I want to revisit a passage that we've looked at once already. Verse 20. It says, so they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by a pillar of, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So just a little background to kind of catch you up if you are maybe joining us for the first time this morning. We've been doing a series on the life of Moses and the spiritual insight from his life. Um, as you know that Joseph was uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There was Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the head of each tribe. Joseph was sold into slavery, went into Egypt. And because it was a famine in the land, Joseph had interpreted a dream and had put up grain. As a result of that, the children of Israel, to keep from starving, had to go to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph now is the second most powerful man in the world, and he provides for the children of Israel. There were five years left in the famine, so he brings them to Egypt to nourish them and to take care of them. But the Bible says there rose up a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And so he turned, he, he caused the, uh, the uh, Israelite people to become slaves, and he uh, burdened them with bondage and, 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 and hard work. Uh, 400 years they were in slavery in Egypt. And the Bible says that God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham. And uh, he heard their cries, and he sent them a deliverer. Moses was born as a baby, isn't it? A beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. He sent a deliverer in the form of a baby. And uh, he sent Moses. He was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, spent the first 40 years of his life as the prince in Egypt. And then he went out, the Bible says, it came into his heart to visit his people. He went out and saw an Egyptian beating a, an Israeli. He killed the Egyptian. And as a result of that, he had to run for his life and spent the next 40 years as a shepherd in Median. He met his wife, Zipporah, there, and after 40 years, he saw the burning bush that was burning but was not consumed. And out of the burning bush, God told him to go back and tell Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. But Pharaoh said, who is your God that I should obey him? I don't know who your God is, and I will not let your people go. And he increased their burdens. And as a result of that, God sent the plagues. He sent it for two reasons. He sent the plagues to show Israel that he was the one true almighty God. There's none before him. Amen. And to show that the Egyptians that their false, their gods were false. Each plague was connected to one of the pagan deities in Egypt. 
He's turned the water into blood. He sent frogs, lice, flies, a cattle disease. There were boils all over their bodies. He sent hells of fire, locusts, three days of darkness. And the tenth of the last plague was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Every person that was not under the blood died in that plague. The firstborn children died. And so after that, Pharaoh called the men, says, get all your belongings, everything you got, your cattle, and get out. Just get out. And so they left. As soon as they left the city, Pharaoh had a decision to follow up. The children of Israel had a despair, and they wanted to give up. But the declaration of Moses for the, was for them to stand up and look up. Amen. Then we see in Exodus 14, and this is where we stopped last week. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And we talked about last week, what caused the sea to part? We said, well, of course, God did. But we pointed out the fact that nothing happened until Moses stretched out his hand. And this morning, I want you to look at this with me again, because there's very, something very significant happening here. This is the first time in human history that we see the Shekinah glory of God with man. God's presence is dwelling with them. Before this time, God's presence had visited man. When Abraham was in his tent, he saw the, the three men coming. It's called a, a, a theophany. It's the manifestation of the Godhead, the triune Godhead. And he prepared them a meal, and they told him that Sarah is going to conceive and bear a son. And, and uh, he visited Abraham. When he told Abraham, take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him, and he's about to sacrifice his son, God visited Abraham and says, don't touch him. And there was a ram had his horns caught in the bush, and he provided a sacrifice. He provided his own sacrifice, a picture of Jesus Christ. We see Jacob wrestling with the angel. He said, loose me for the day dawns. He said, I will not loose you unless you bless me. And the angel touched the hollow of his thigh and said, you'll not be called a surplanter or a trickster anymore, but you will be called the one who has overcome. You'll be called Israel from this point on. So we see God visiting them. We see God visiting Joseph when he interprets the dreams and everything. But we don't see the power and the presence of God dwelling with man until this point in history. The Shekinah glory of Almighty God is with man. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, I pray that you open our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes, God. Father, your word says the word of God is only veiled to those who do, do not believe. So, God, I pray that you just let faith rise up in us today, Lord, to see the truth of your word. The veil would be removed, God. We will see what you have to say to us today, Lord, that we can walk in the perfect center of your will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for the first time, we see God dwelling with man. Let's look at it again, verse 22. It says, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day 
or their pillar fire by night from before them. In verse 21, he said the cloud was to lead them and to be a light to them. So this cloud has come to lead them. It, it was never taken up. For 40 years, this cloud was there. And at night, it was a pillar of fire to light the way for them. <clears throat> Not only that, but in Exodus 14, we saw that God used a flawed human vessel in the person of Moses to demonstrate his power. God's power is dem being demonstrated by the deliberate, direct action of man. And as man does his part, God is going to do his part by the glory of this presence that has come to dwell with them. Now, I want you to see something this morning. and I'm going to, This is really a teaching. It's not so much a sermon. But what we're doing here is it's an important spiritual law that is being set in place here. And to find these things, we use some things that we're taught in Bible college and Bible students learn called exegetical biblical laws. Exegete, it just means to lead out. It, it is the critical explanation and interpretation of, this, of the text. So we have to exegete the scripture to see really what is being said here. How does it apply to me and how does it apply to you? We also see another rule of interpretation called hermeneutical rules of interpretation. Those are just big words. It talks about how you study the Bible. Hermeneutical, exegetical, biblical rules or laws. These laws and rules include such things as historical and cultural background of the text. So when you read the Bible, you want to see what, what's the history here? What is the culture here? For example, you... you You've probably heard it talked, women are to be silent in church. Anybody ever heard that? Well, people have taken a, a passage out of context. They have no idea what he's talking about, and they beat women over the head with it in 2015 to sit down and shut up. And you have to look at what is the cultural background there. What was Paul dealing with in the church of Corinth? And it's not got anything to do with us today. It's entirely different. You know, the way that they dress code. You know, women aren't supposed to dress in men's apparel. And they want to be, why do they always pick on women? Women are not to dress in men's apparel. Well, let me tell you something. Men didn't wear blue jeans in the Bible. And if you see a man walking around today dressed like they dressed in the Bible, you got a bigger problem than a woman wearing pants to church. All right? So it's cultural. you got to look at the historical and cultural background, the hairstyles. You know, I was beat over the head when I was a teenager. When I got really filled with the Holy Ghost, my hair was down to here. I, I would reach back there. I wore a ponytail most of the time. And they pulled the scripture out. says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. I said, well, not my nature doesn't. It was cultural. And I had to point out the fact that the razor never touched Jesus' head. Come on. If I had hair now, it would probably be long. <laughs> Eating meats offered to sacrifice, things like that. You want to look at what is the original audience? Who is it addressing? When we read the Bible, a lot of times we'll take things that's not even talking to you. And try to apply it to you. That's how we get things like replacement theology. Where people try to say that the true Jews are the British. Therefore they came to America and Canada. Of the quote ten lost tribes of Israel. It's a, it's a false teaching. 
that's distorted because they're not looking at who the text is talking to. First of all, I, I better not get on that. There's no such thing as the 10 lost tribes to begin with. Eschatology eras, things about end time teaching. You have to look at the genre. What is the composition of the literature? Is it marked with distinct styles? Like the book of Hebrews, for example. It doesn't have an author's signature. But we know that the apostle Paul wrote it because of the literary style that it was written in. We know it was his work. So what is the form, the literary technique, the tone? Is it meant to be literal? Is it satire? Is it allegory? Is it pastoral? Is it poetry? What is the cultural movement or the historical period? For example, the, the disciples were in a time they had what they call the Sakari. The Sakari meant dagger. And there were men with the Jesus that were a part of the Sakari. Simon the Zealot, he, was a, he wanted to overthrow the government. He carried a he, he was packing. He carried concealed. All right. We believe that, that Judas was also a part of the Zakar, and so was Simon Peter. Because when they came to arrest Jesus, what did he do? He pulled out his sword. Well, where did he get the sword from? He was packing because he was a part of the Zakari. So see, you understand so much more if you will use these homiletical exegetical biblical rules to see what is this talking about? How does it apply to me? Now, all of these rules and laws of interpretation are important to understand these things of how, what is my part in carrying out God's plan for man? That leads me up to the law that I want to address this morning. What we are seeing here is what is known as the law of first mention. Let's look at it again in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 21. It says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and to go day and night. And he did not take the pillar of the cloud away from the people, uh, from before the people. Now, because this cloud was with man, the Shekinah glory, Moses was able to stretch out his hand and see a miracle take place. Because that Shekinah glory was there. God is using a flawed human vessel to do an impossible thing through that Shekinah glory. Now, every Jewish and Christian scholar agrees that this is the first time we see God's Shekinah glory. Now, I keep using that word, and some people are like, what is a Shekinah? Uh, there was a church that I was telling Hunter, there was a church in Bishopville, South Carolina. You, you had to know that was a religious town, didn't you? <laughs> Named Shekinah. That was the name of the church. And, and one of the, the leaders over that group of churches says, you really ought to change the name because people ride down the road. It's, what is a Shekinah? <laughs> Shekinah is really a word not found in the Bible. Shekinah is a Chaldee word, which means he caused to dwell or resting place. Chaldee, Chaldee is, is part of the Bible is written in Hebrew and Chaldee and Aramaic. Chaldee was the language of Abraham. He came from the Ur of the Chaldees. In other words, modern day Iraq. And so it was a Chaldee word that means God has come to dwell. And it was used by the Jews to designate the visible symbol of God's glory. So the law of first mention simply means the first time any important word is mentioned, Scripture gives that word its most complete and accurate meaning. 
to not only serve as a key to understanding the word's biblical concept, but to also provide a foundation for its fuller development in later parts of the Bible. So when we see for the very first time the Shekinah glory coming down, what happened when it came? And it's a key to understand what the Shekinah glory is for and what it's going to do and how it's going to be a foundation for how it is used in other places in the Bible. Because we see God using man in concert with his power. The second time we see the Shekinah glory is Moses is taking the children of Israel through the wilderness and God instructs Moses to build the wilderness tabernacle. It was a tent. And in this tent, they had the Holy of Holies where they built the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold and it had two cherubs that stood on each side of it and their wings stretched out and touched each other and shadowed what was known as the mercy seat. We see in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at just any other time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. That is the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory for 40 years would rest over the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. And what he is saying, what happened is the two sons of Aaron brought in strange fire. It was fire that didn't come off of the altar. And when they walked in, they were irreverent and disrespectful to the presence of God, and they fell dead. And God says, Moses, tell Aaron, don't you come in here like that, or you will die too. And then he gives him a whole long list of how he is to prepare himself. He is to bathe, and he's to put on certain linen undergarments, and he's to put on the ephod and all the different attire that he had to to dress in and he had to bring certain sacrifices of bulls and lambs and different things and come in once a year and bring the blood to atone for the sins of the people so what are we seeing we're seeing a concert of flawed human vessel Aaron the high priest coming into the Shekinah glory of God to atone for the sins of millions of people After that, the ark is carried, it's carried all over the countryside, and always the glory would rest on the mercy seat of God. We see it taken from the time that it was in the wilderness tabernacle, it was carried all over the wilderness for 40 years of wandering, and then they carried it across the Jordan and set it up in Gilgal. After that, it was carried to Shiloh, where it stayed most of its time in, in the Holy Land. By the end of the time of the judges, you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses led the people, Joshua led the people, then all the judges. One of the last judges was Eli and his two sons, Hopni and Phinehas. They just used the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. And so they're in battle against the Philistines. They're losing the battle, so they send and get the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp, everybody starts shouting, you know, because they think, oh, the Ark of the Covenant is here. We are certain to win now. 
The Philistines heard the battle cry and said, what has happened? They said, the ark of God has come into the camp of the Israelites. And they said, we're doomed because we know what the presence of God did in Egypt. We're doomed. But stand up and fight. And because Hopni and Phinehas didn't respect the glory of God, they lost the battle. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. And Hopni and Phinehas both were killed. They brought word back to Eli. Hopni and Phinehas is dead. We've lost the battle. And they have taken the Ark of the Covenant. And the Bible says that when he heard the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, he fell over and died because he was old and heavy. And so the Philistines, they carried the Ark of the Covenant around, and everywhere they would take it, plagues would break out, and men would die, and those that didn't die would have tumors come out all over their body. And so they sent it, they sent it to Ashdod, then they sent it to Ekron, and, and then they sent it to another city, and they said, don't bring it here. Send it back to the camp of the Israelites. And so they took two milk cows that had calves. If a cow milks, that means it's got calves. That's how you get a cow to milk, right? <laughs> They had just given, had calves, and they said we will, they'd never been yoked. So they put a yoke on them, hooked it to a cart, set the Ark of the Covenant on it, and said if it returns to Israel, we'll know that God was in this. But if not, we'll know it was just by chance that people had tumors and that they died from this disease. And the Bible says the cattle went lowing down the road. In other words, they were mooing, looking for their calves, and took it right back to Israel. And it returned back to the, is, to the the people in Israel. And it stayed back in Shiloh until David realized it's supposed to be in the temple. And so he erected uh, another tabernacle for it. And he went to get it and put it on a cart because he didn't realize that's not how you carry the ark. It's supposed to be carried on the shoulder of the priest. You show reverence to the presence of God. Are you hearing me, church? You still with me? You show reverence to the presence of God. You respect the presence of God. But they were disrespectful to the presence of God, put it on a cart, and it shook, and Yuzah touched it and fell dead. It scared them all to pieces, you know, and they put it in Obed's house. And then David heard that Obed was prospering, man, because the Ark of the Covenant was there. It says that he went back and he put it on the shoulders of the priest. They would take six paces. Six. Set it down and offer sacrifice. And they did that all the way back to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. So much that his clothes fell off. And he's dancing in the city. I don't know if I want to get that image in my head. But he was dancing before the Lord. And his wife mocked him. And he said, you, you, you think that's something. I'm going to get even more dig undignified than that. Amen. The next time we see it was when Solomon built the temple and it finally found its place in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. I'm going somewhere with all this. Stay with me. Verse 12 says, also the Levites, which were the singers, that's the priest, and then it gives their names, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Now, this is what they were sounding with. This is what they called a trumpet. It's a shafar. And they come in all different sizes. This is actually a kudu horn. Is that how you say it, kudu? Kudu horn. And they would blow this. Can you imagine 120 people blowing on these while the women are playing tambourines and harps? Harps would be like stringed instruments. 
And you know what I thought about? It would probably be really, really weird, probably scare everybody out of their wits. But what if every man in the church bought a shafar, and when we dedicated our new temple, we blow the shafar? And have the women bring in tambourines and have all the string instruments and just make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Wouldn't that be something? I'm not saying we're going to do that, but who knows? We might. If you guys come walk, start walking in here with a bunch of horns, I'll know that you're into it. and we'll, We just may go there. Let's see what happened when they blew the trumpet. Verse 13. And it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of praise, of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So we see the Shekinah glory just filled the house, and it was so powerful that they fell down and couldn't stand up. So where we get the term being slain in the spirit. It's a biblical term. When the Shekinah glory comes, the, the, the uh, kabod comes, you can't stand in that presence. Is that how you say it, Joe, the kabod? The kabod, the glory. That's the word glory. Shekinah kabod, the Shekinah glory. So in the time of Jerusalem, in their time, the, the Babylonians finally came in and they destroyed the temple. The ark was taken and hidden, and to this day, we don't know where the ark of the covenant is hidden. Somebody hid it. I don't know. I suppose in the last days it's going to be revealed. It's going to be put back in the temple, I assume. I don't know for sure. But we see also in Ezekiel 10, it's describing the glory of the Lord being lifted from the temple. So we don't see the Shekinah glory again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the presence of God was still there. Church, listen to me. You may not see the Shekinah glory. But the Shekinah glory is here. It's always been here. It's here right now. It was there, even though they didn't see the Shekinah glory, it was there. Haggai chapter 2. Now, Haggai is the prophet in the, that was to rebuild the temple. It says, verse 1, in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thou... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it in your eyes is nothing? In other words, Solomon, man, when he built the temple, it was overlaid with gold. It had all the cedars of uh, Lebanon. I mean, it was the finest of everything. But now they've rebuilt it, and they didn't have at their disposal all of those things. So when you looked at the Solomon of temple, temple of Solomon and saw it, now you're seeing the one that Haggai has built. There was no comparison between the two. So he said, isn't it as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, say, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you. God hadn't gone anywhere. His presence was still there. 
I am with you, says the Lord, according to the word that I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I will shake heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple, stay with me now. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. I'm still with you. The covenant that I made with you on the bank of the Red Sea, when my Shekinah glory came down, I have never taken it away. It's still right here. And I am here to tell you that I'm going to bring my glory into my temple and the glory in the latter temple is going to be greater than what you saw in Solomon's temple. Are you hearing me, church? So we don't see the glory of God after that. We didn't see it then. And then there's 400 years of silence. From Malachi until the book of Matthew, there's 400 years of silence, and it seemed that the glory of God was gone forever. And then we read in Luke chapter 2, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. We read that and heard it read a bazillion times, haven't you? And don't realize that the Shekinah glory has just returned to earth. His manifested glory has just been revealed to flawed human vessels. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now he said to Haggai, the latter temple shall be greater than the former temple. Now what is that talking about? The glory of God has just been made manifest in a little bitty baby. Jesus Christ, church, is the Shekinah glory. He is the Shekinah glory. But is it saying that the Shekinah glory that is in Jesus Christ is greater than the Shekinah glory of God that's set over the mercy seat? No, that's not what it's saying. It's not making Jesus greater than God. They're the same. They are one in the same. They are one. And he says that. My father and I are one. What makes it greater is the fact that the Shekinah glory has come to abide with man and will never leave again. It dwells with man. It left the temple. Ezekiel 10, you see it leaving the temple. We see it returning in the person of Jesus Christ, not in temples made by hand. But the Bible says, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. Church, are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? I don't know if you heard that. The Shekinah glory of God dwells in you. The power of God that split the Red Sea is inside of you. It's inside of you. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read two more scriptures, and then I'm going to let you go eat some chicken. 
Verse 6, it says, who also made you, made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, that's talking about the law, the commandments, the, law, the Ten Commandments, the law of, of Moses. Verse 7 says, but if the ministry of death, talking about the letter, written engraved in stone, that's the Ten Commandments that was etched on the stone, all right, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory is passing away. In other words, when he went up on the mountain, received that words etched in stone, he said, God, show me your glory. He said, you can't look at my glory or you will die. No man can look at my glory. They can see God face to face, but they can't see his glory. And the Bible says that he put him in the cleft of the rock and said, I will pass by you and let you see my back. And when he walked by, he saw the back of God and the glory of just the back of his backside was so powerful that his face glowed so bright that the people couldn't even look at his face. They had to put a veil over his face. But they said that glory uh, that was on his face is fading away. It's fading away. Verse 8. He said, that glory shall pass away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? It's more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds with much more glory. Verse 10. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that excels. For if... What is passing away was glorious. What remains is much more glorious. In other words, the Shekinah glory that was there, as glorious as it was, pales in comparison to what is inside of you and me. You may not see it. You may not know it or understand it. But the Bible declares that it's there. And it's more glorious than what we see in the Old Testament. The power to part the Red Sea. You know, they said that that part was probably more than a mile wide. A mile, that's, that's a long way. That's wide. Because the mathematician said that there were 2 million people. I just read this. 2 million people crossed the Red Sea. And if they marched 10 abreast, then it would have been a, a line 160 miles long. That the, the front of the line would have been at Canaan by the time the last person crossed, got out of the Red Sea. So they were more than 10 people wide with five feet between them, I think he said. So that's 50 feet. It was more than 50 feet wide. In other words, they were, they were the whole crowd of them going through on dry ground. That's the glory of God that was demonstrated when Moses stretched out his hand. What's inside of you? What's inside of us, church? I don't think we've even, God just kind of cracked open a window and let me peep through it. Do you have any idea what's inside of you? I'm like, no, I don't. But I'm starting to get a glimpse of it. Not according to what I'm saying, but according to what God said. Then he goes on in the next chapter, in chapter 4, and I'm going to read that and we're going to close. Therefore, when you say therefore, you don't see what therefore is there for, right? Therefore, because of what he just said, what's inside of you has more glory than what we saw in the Old Testament. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. In other words, you're not going to quit. You're not going to quit. 
But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in the craftiness of handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the, gospel, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now you break that down and look at what he's saying. The only people that don't see this is the people that the God of this world has blinded them. Because if they are not blinded, they're going to see that the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of the glory of God, it's going to shine on them. But this is some good stuff here if you can get a hold of this now. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves a bondservant for Jesus Christ. Everybody say a flawed Human vessel for Jesus Christ. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, when God created the earth, it was, it was dark. There's no such thing as darkness. Did you realize that? Darkness is simply the absence of light. His presence wasn't there. And God said, light be, and boom, light was. And it drove out the darkness. And he said, God, who caused the light to shine and drove back the darkness, has shown in your heart. And the reason he's shown in your heart to show you and give you the knowledge of the glory of God that's in you through Jesus Christ. This, mm. Mm -mm. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In other words, I have no idea what's inside of me. Why? Because this is an earthen vessel. It's flawed. It's weak. It's fragile. It doubts most of the time. It's fearful most of the time. It worries. It's restless. It's anxious. But inside of all that weak, flawed human vessel is a power that the world has never seen before. There's a power inside this. We have this ministry and this treasure is in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Aren't you glad you got the power of God in you? Had no idea what you had in there, did you? Stand to your feet. God, reveal to us today, Lord. I pray just maybe, God, help, help us crack open the curtain, Lord, and just see a glimpse of what, what you're trying to say, God. When, when, when you first came in your Shekinah glory, God, on the side of the Red Sea, Lord, you demonstrated your power through a man, a human being, a, 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 a clay vessel, Lord. And God, you, you demonstrated something there that is going to be a foundation of what you're going to do and how you're going to build upon that throughout history. 
And Lord, that day in Bethlehem, the Shekinah glory came into the earth. And because he paid the price and he hung on the cross and he shed his blood for the redemption of man, God, we became God people ourselves when the light of Jesus Christ came into our heart. Lord, you declare that we are now the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in us. And God, what I'm seeing here is the Shekinah glory, the, the awesome miracle working power of your spirit dwells in us, God. And Lord, I, my, my mind sees this, Lord, but my spirit just hasn't grasped it, God. And I pray today, Lord, that you help us, to our spirit, to grasp this, Lord. That, Lord, we can just rest in you. And, Lord, I heard you say this morning, just rest in me. Don't be anxious. Be at peace. So, Father, we ask you to help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Now, let me just challenge you before we leave. Because as we begin to understand this, we, my, my tendency is to even be more anxious. When I begin to understand the, the depth and the height and the width and the, just the, the knowledge of what is inside of the hearts of Christian people, it makes me want to be more anxious to go do something for God, do something big and awesome and spectacular. It's like, what is it, God? It's got to be something big to do, you know. You can lose your peace living a life like that. I know because I've done that before. Feel like I'm failing God because I'm not doing something huge. And what I learned, and I actually did learn this a long time ago. God said, what am I telling you to do right now? I'm like, God, I don't hear anything. He said, all right, that's what I want you to do. When I look at the characters of the Bible, see, we see the highlights of their life, the things that they did. But most of their days were just like yours and mine. They were ho-hum, humdrum, going to work, getting up. What are you going to fix for supper? Where are you going to get your supplies to do your job? And all, all those things, they had all those things to do. Most every day was like that. And then when God had something for them to do, he spoke to their heart and said, do it. It is at that point you must hear the voice of God and say, here am I, Lord, send me. I will go do it. And church, it may not be something huge and spectacular. It may be what Charity stood up here and read this morning. Feed the hungry. Do not turn your eyes from the, and hearts from those who are weak and poor and hungry. Maybe something nobody will see, nobody will know but God. In fact, the Bible says don't let the right hand, left hand know what the right hand is doing. What you do in secret, God will shout it from the housetop, you know. Sometimes we won't do something unless we've got a platform and a microphone or a spotlight or something, and people's going to see it and know it. And it may not be something like that at all. But I just believe that when we hear his voice, we step out in faith and do what he's asked us to do. The Shekinah glory, this I know. The Shekinah glory is there to make it happen. You're not going to make it happen anyway. If you get anxious and try to push it through and make it happen, it's not going to happen anyway. You can't make it happen. 
I've seen people out of their own ability and their, their creativity and their, just their ingenuity and their uh, know-how make things happen. But God wasn't in it at all. They were just good businessmen or good at doing things. And I've seen people that didn't know diddly squat do some amazing things because God did it. And they knew God did it. Because the Shekinah glory is in you to do anything. If a man can pick up a stick and hold it out and I see part, come on, church. My word. You know that same man could take that same stick and walk up to every ocean in the world, stick it out, and all he's going to see is waves break on the sea, on the shore. Because God didn't tell him to split every ocean. Told him to split that one. So we just need to be at peace. Don't be anxious. Rest in the Lord. Love on. Just do, get in his word. He said, if you will obey my word, obey my commands, keep my statutes, he said, I will cause none of the diseases that came in Egypt to come upon you. I mean, you just start reading the blessings that God will give you just for obeying his command, keeping his statutes. Now, those are things we need to do. When I say don't be anxious and don't, don't do anything, no, you keep his commandment, all right? You walk in his statutes. That doesn't have to do with what I'm doing on the outside. That has to do with what's going on right here in my heart. But church, I'm convinced of this. If you will keep your heart pure as you know how and right before God, be at peace, have the joy of the Lord. Do you know the Bible says he gives you joy? Joy that passes understanding. Not only that, but he gives you gladness. There's a difference. Gladness means I'm happy. I'm a happy person. A lot of times that's just a choice. I just choose to be happy. Some people think I'm goofy, but that's all right. They're miserable. I'm happy. I'm a goofy, happy guy. Go ahead and be a miserable, sincere person if you want to. I'm going to be goofy and happy because I got the gladness of God, the joy of the Lord. If you will do that, I just believe that God is going to have your ear and he's going to say, all right, I want you to do this. And when you step out and do it, it may be something small. It may be something enormous. But the Shekinah glory is in you, church. This I know. The Shekinah glory that is more glorious and greater than what we saw on the bank of the Red Sea. Because the Bible says it's more glorious and greater. It's inside of every one of you. How many of you know Jesus was greater than Moses? Right? Jesus was greater than Moses. And he lives in your heart. Amen? Father... I thank you for every person that's assembled in this place. God, if there's one person here today that doesn't know you, Father, I pray that they will just turn their life over completely to you, God. They will repent and turn from their sin, God, and they will plead for the blood of Jesus Christ to be covered upon their heart, God, and that you will redeem them from their sin, Lord. That's something between you and them. I pray that they do that today. God, they not waste another moment, but God, they turn their life completely and totally over to you so that they will be acceptable in your sight. Then, Lord, as we leave this place, Lord, I pray that your blessing go with us, God. Again, Lord, we pray for our missionaries in Israel, Lord. God, I pray for your peace on those people. You told us you'll bless those who bless them. So, God, we bless Israel today, Lord. 
Pray for your peace there, God. We pray for Benjamin Netanyahu as he leads that nation, God. Give him wisdom. Protect them. Keep them safe, Lord, because the enemy is all around them wanting to destroy them. But, God, they're still your chosen people. And your hand is still upon them. Watch out for them, God. And I pray also your blessing be upon every person in this place, God. Bless their home. God, make it a refuge, oh God, a, a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome, Lord. May it be a place that is free from worldly influence, God. A place where you are honored and revered. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvaag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.